when a construction firm in Ohio was building a bridge highway overpass and removed as a preliminary step the old concrete decking in order to perform work on resurfacing new decking for the bridge, the day after the decking was removed, a compliance officer for the Occupational Safety and Health Administration entered the work site, conducted an inspection, and issued a citation under the fall protection standard. The Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission handed it back, saying that it was improvidently written on the basis that the agency had failed to establish that the employer had knowledge of any alleged violation. We're going to talk about this impactful decision from the Review Commission on this, the July 21, 2021 episode of the OSHA 33. Hello, everyone. I'm Manish Rath, and welcome to the OSHA 3030 with Manish Rath. I am a partner at the law firm Keller and Heckman here in Washington, D.C. I've been uh, working on matters involving occupational safety and health law on behalf of management uh, for the entirety of my time. And I'm joined today by one of my colleagues here, Keller and Heckman, Taylor Johnson. Taylor, thank you for joining the OSHA 3030 today, and welcome to the OSHA 3030. Thanks for having me, Manish. Always a pleasure to be on the show. Well, as you know, we've got a great topic. Why don't you go through some of the topics that we're going to discuss involving this fall protection standard decision coming out of the Review Commission? Absolutely. Um, so first, what, what we're going to do is just provide an overview of the facts in the, in the recent uh, Review Commission decision. Uh, we'll get into a description of OSHA's uh, allegations against the employer, essentially, uh, you know, unpack the citation. Uh, we'll go through the elements of the fall protection standard, which, as you mentioned, is the standard that the, uh, the employer here was cited under. And we're really going to uh, go into detail on the constructive knowledge principle, which is really sort of the crux of the case. Um, we'll uh, have a quick discussion of, of the, uh, the reversal of the administrative law judge's decision. Um, and as always, uh, we'll provide some practical takeaways uh, for employers uh, from this case. And then we're going to turn off the recording and start our new section, uh, Off the Record, which is a conversation for live participants only. Uh, we're going to answer some questions submitted by the viewers, and we already have some great questions there that were pre-submitted. So we always ask uh, the week before the OSHA 3030 to pre-submit any questions you have about matters involving OSHA law. If it is a black letter law question that we can answer off the top of our heads, we don't mind sharing it. If you don't want to ask it while on the recording, we've created this new off the record section so that it is just a live webinar and a chat amongst professionals. Uh, so, so please feel free to submit questions relating to OSHA law. It could be about this topic or any topic that you might have a question about. And if it's something we can answer, answer in a minute or two, uh, we're happy to include that. We're happy to include your section, uh, your question in that section. So Taylor, let's, let's start off by talking about this case. The, the construction firm in question is a firm named Shelley and Sands Incorporated. And they were engaged by the Department of Transportation to, to redo the decking, the concrete decking on a highway overpass over another highway. This is on Interstate 77 near Cambridge, Ohio, for those of you who might know or have traveled on Interstate 77. This process involves first removing the old concrete surface on the bridge and then installing false work uh, to 
which, which is a, basically a false deck underneath that's comprised of four by four wood uh, beams uh, on top of which would be plyboard uh, uh, decking so that, that there is a working surface for workers to work uh, under the bridge. It also prevents debris from falling through onto the highway below. The plywood is secured to four by fours, which are in turn secured to the I-beams that are the structural components of the bridge itself. So Shelley and Sands begins their process by removing the concrete decking and installing this false work. We're gonna to continue to refer to this wood deck underneath as false work. And no sooner had they removed the concrete surface above and installed the false work than the very next day, a compliance officer from the US Occupational Safety and Health Administration arrives on the scene, meets with the foreman and asks if he can take a look around. The foreman at the moment, this is the very start of the shift as I understand it. And so the foreman is still in his truck getting work done at the start of the shift. There are workers on the bridge performing work. The foreman says, yes, you can take a look around. The compliance officer goes out to the bridge and sees at least two workers on the deck standing on the false work. And the, the false work has uh, horizontal lifelines installed, but the two workers are not tied off. Taylor, I think this is an interesting fact pattern. We've gotten it a lot. We've worked with employers in construction, lots. We've worked with employers in road construction. And a question has come up, at what point does fall protection, uh, the, do the fall protection requirements get triggered? Uh, when you're on an embankment, but there's a cliff, when you're on a bridge, but there's adequate decking. Uh, here, Shelling Sands didn't dispute whether or not the fall protection standards would have applied to those workers in question, did they? That's right, they didn't, Manish. Um, so essentially, uh, as you were mentioning, uh, Shelley and Sands, they did not contest um, the fact that the standard applied um, or that their uh, employees were actually in violation. Um, what, what, what ends up happening is, is as we'll unpack later, is that the, what they really are saying, uh, Shelley and Sands' position is that uh, they did not have any knowledge uh, that this violation was occurring. Um, but as you were describing, Manish, um, you know, th there was this false work here and OSHA, when the inspector arrived, issued a citation um, and alleged that Shelley and Sands permitted these employees to stand on I-beams and false work uh, without fall protection. Uh, there was actually three items uh, that they were cited under. Um, one was for uh, having employees stand on bridge beams uh, 20 feet in the air. Uh, the second was for standing on bridge beams nine feet in the air. And then the last was standing on false work uh, 17 feet. Uh, in the air. Um, and so the company, uh, it's actually what was interesting here is that the company had been previously cited uh, for these same violations. Um, and that comes up later in the case. So that's just sort of an important uh, fact to put a pin in for right now. Um, and there was a proposed penalty of $68,591 uh, for each item, uh, which the company timely contested. Well, this is interesting because the facts don't seem to be much in dispute as to what the workers were doing, whether they were tied off or not. Right. And Shelley and Sands doesn't seem to dispute either that tying off would have been required in that circumstance, given where they were standing at the time that the compliance officer observed them. 
uh, and they don't dispute that the applicability of the fall, sta uh, fall protection standard applied given that they were significantly above the six feet threshold uh, that would have been called for. The only question that Shelley and Sands debated was, well, we didn't know that they were engaging in work without having tied off. And had we known, we would have reprimanded them immediately and, uh, and asked them to do it right. The secretary said, that doesn't matter. Even if you didn't know, in fact, you should have known. You should have known how they were performing their work. You should have known that they weren't tied off. So let's step back, Taylor. I think as a general rule, the burden for OSHA to establish a violation of standard is that the agency has to establish that the employer was engaged in the kind of conduct for which a cited, the cited standard would have applied. That's something that the parties don't dispute in this case. Right. The agency would have had to have alleged and established that the employer failed to comply with some element in that standard. The employer, Shelley and Sands, in this case, acknowledged that the workers weren't tied off. They merely averred that they didn't know about it. They, the agency would have had to establish that employees are exposed to uh, hazards associated with the violative, allegedly violative condition. And in this case, I think when you're above the fall protection threshold here, nine to 20 feet up above the ground, I, I think that that is uh, something that parties don't dispute. Then the fourth element is that the employer knew or knew of the violative condition or alleged violative condition, or with the exercise of uh, reasonable diligence in trying to discover compliance versus non-compliance would have discovered or would have uncovered non-compliant conditions or non-compliant practices. And here, this is the part that the parties dispute. And this is the centerpiece of the Shelley and Sands decision from the Review Commission. And it's the reason we selected this topic for the OSHA 3030 this month, is that the evidence in question was not in debate, yet the administrative law judge and three members of the Review Commission were not in conformance in their view as to whether that constituted actual or constructive knowledge. And I think that that is an incredibly important lesson for the employer community. So the constructive knowledge principle, remember that it's that the agency has to establish that the employer either knew of a violative condition or through the exercise of reasonable amounts of diligence would have known or should have known of, of an allegedly violative condition. In this particular case, Shelley Sands says, we didn't know about the violative condition. We don't think that we were exercising anything below a standard of reasonable degree of diligence. And in addition, they invoked the affirmative defense that if the employees were not complying with what we had taught them in terms of compliance with the fall protection standard, that was unpreventable employee misconduct, which occurred for a brief period that we wouldn't have been able to catch even with reasonable uh, diligence in monitoring for those violations or alleged violations. And interestingly, the Review Commission never visited the, that last point, the unpreventable employee misconduct defense, a defense that we've talked about several times over our history here on the OSHA 3030 in the context of other cases. The Review Commission said it's sufficient to address this issue on the constructive knowledge standard such that we can dispense with the case and not ever have to address Shelley and Sands' affirmative defense of unpreventable employee misconduct. 
Then they address the question of uh, constructive knowledge and whether or not there was reasonable diligence exercised by Shelley and Sands. And they dispensed with the case on the basis that uh, of, a, of an analysis, which essentially looks a lot like the unpreventable employee misconduct defense anyways. So let's talk about that. This first goes to an administrative law judge to handle an administrative trial, a presentation of evidence by both sides. And then Shelley and Sands appealed it to the Review Commission, which is a three-person commission. Taylor, right. let's, let's walk through the administrative law judge decision. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so as you can see here, the administrative law judge, uh, they affirmed only one instance uh, of, of standing on false work without fault protection. Uh, so the uh, the instances of the citation of the employees standing on the I-beams uh, without false protection were dismissed. Um, the reason for this was that the foreman was sitting in his truck uh, such that he could not see the employees standing on the I-beams. Um, the administrative law judge also gets into the short duration of the violation. Uh, it was approximately 10 to 15 minutes that these employees were standing on the I-beams. Um, and so the administrative law judge, with respect to the, the violations of standing on the I-beams, finds that Shelley and Sands did not have knowledge, um, uh, actual or constructive, uh, that, that these employees were, were standing on these I-beams and performing this work uh, without fall protection measures in place. Uh, however, as, as you were alluding to, uh, the ALJ did find uh, constructive knowledge of standing on the false work. Um, and what this was based on essentially was um, a, sort of a, a comment made to the inspector on site. Uh, the inspector asked the foreman uh, why the employees were not standing, uh, were, were, excuse me, uh, were not um, tied off uh, with fall protection measures uh, while they were standing on, on the false work. And the foreman responded, uh, because they're on false work. And so the administrative law judge interpreted uh, this comment uh, to the inspector to mean that the foreman actually believed that the employees on the false work did not need to be tied off. Um, and again, this was sort of based on this interpretation of this comment. Uh, and as we'll see when we get to the to the review commission's decision, um, they interpreted this comment a different way, um, and that sort of hinged on you know on on what the what the foreman believed uh, at the time in regards to whether or not there was an exception uh, to standing on false work and needing to be tied off uh, with fall protection measures. Um, so, so the case uh, goes over to the Review Commission um, and it gets, it gets more interesting from there. It does because the Review Commission, again, a three-person panel, looks at the exact same facts. They preserve all of the credibility findings of the administrative law judge and they're essentially looking at the same facts and same credibility findings as the judge did and coming to a different conclusion. On a two to one split, the majority said, when we look at the colloquy, the interaction between the compliance officer and the foreman, we see that OSHA has made a leap, an inference that isn't substantiated in the evidence. It may be a reasonable uh, inference, but it is not the, the re, uh, most reasonable as established by the evidence. Uh, the, the inference here is the, the exchange that you just described, Taylor. Uh, the compliance officer is on the stand with the administrative law judge and says, now I did ask when, when I saw the foreman, uh, I asked uh, why were those workers not tied off? And he said, because they're on standing on the false work. From that, the compliance officer understood the foreman to say, 
they're not tied off because they don't need to be because they're on the false work. The review commission did not take a different view or a different interpretation of this. They merely said, if you're going to make that inferential leap, the agency needs, has the burden to establish with evidence that that's what he meant. The compliance officer should have asked the question more precisely, should have asked follow-up questions, or when put on the stand, they should have got elicited that meaning from the foreman himself and said, what did you mean when you said that? Isn't it true that you meant you didn't think that they needed to be tied off because they're standing on the false work? And then tested the inference that OSHA had jumped to, to see if it was a not only reasonable inference, but one that 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 an inference that, that that no longer needs inference, but is substantiated uh, by clearer evidence. So what they essentially said was that that that's not what we look for when we look for meeting their burden of proof. To merely say that the compliance officer asked, "Well, why aren't they tied off?" and the foreman re responded, "Because they're standing on false work." That would have required that anybody would have interpreted it the way the compliance officer did. But in fact, there's another reasonable interpretation the review commission went on to say. They said, it's possible that he meant that they think that they don't have to tie off because they're standing on false work, but that I wouldn't share their view. It's possible that that's his meaning. And in fact, the review commission looked at extrinsic facts to support the reasonableness of that interpretation without embracing that interpretation themselves at the commission level. They said, look, for example, the foreman himself had been involved in when the company was cited for this exact same alleged violation uh, less than a year earlier. And he was subsequently suspended by his employer for 14, uh, for seven weeks, I believe, lost a lot of income. He had to go through additional fall protection training with an outside third party training company. He had to come back and meet with the owner and uh, others in management. And he was also participant in training for the entire staff on fall protection. And he had, uh, there was evidence that he had issued uh, a large number of reprimands for observed violations in the past of fall protection uh, practices. So with that said, the Review Commission says, when you look at all that, and all that's only within the past 10 months leading up to this alleged violation, it's at least as likely that what he meant was not that he thought that they didn't need to be tied off, but that he remembered very clearly that they do, and that he meant maybe that's what they're thinking. And in fact, the probative value of a compliance officer asking a foreman, what are they thinking? Why did they do something? Why did they not do something? is so poor that I don't think that it should be given any credence regardless of what the response was. I think the question's been probably formed. And you know, granted, I'm a trial attorney and I handle trials all the time. Uh, and I, I would probably have answered this differently. I would have answered, you're asking me for to speculate on why someone else did something. And I can't, I can't speculate on why, what, what their motives are. And I think that'd be a great answer had the foreman given it. <laughs> but but he, what he said was a speculative answer. And so for that reason, I'd argue, Taylor, that it has zero probative value as to whether or not on the face of his statement, there's any truth or he's revealed any truth. Uh, I would agree. He was asked to guess what they were thinking and he took a guess. Right, exactly. So, so the review commission 
felt like, given that that's at least as plausible, a, an interpretation of his response, the secretary had simply not established its burden of proof that there was knowledge or constructive knowledge. Well, this is an interesting case because we have what we have in this case is, first of all, it's interesting because it went to a, a full evidentiary trial. Second of all, it's interesting because the only thing in debate is whether or not the employer knew about the violative, allegedly violative condition. And the evidence to support that they did was the statement by the foreman when he was asked to explain why they were doing this. Uh, the second part of the uh, analysis has to go to constructive knowledge. Well, what did they know? And then what, did, what should they have known with the exercise of reasonable diligence? There, the review commission said, Shelley and Sands had put on sufficient amount of evidence that they had exercised reasonable diligence, whether or not they caught this particular incident is not material to the question of whether they should have with the exercise of reasonable diligence or did they exercise reasonable diligence. And so Ellen Sands has done an excellent job uh, through their counsel. It was a friend of mine uh, in Ohio, an OSHA, a, a proper OSHA attorney, by the way, in Ohio who got an excellent result. Uh, and their evidence was in part the training program the acknowledgments that employees, all of the employees of that worksite had participated in the training program. They put on evidence of what the employer through its supervisory staff did to monitor for compliance. They put on evidence of reprimands, I believe over a hundred yep. reprimands uh, relating to fall protection alone. And it's hard to say with that vast body of evidence that the employer hadn't exercised reasonable diligence. It's also hard to say with all of the training and with all the records of the training and with the uh, process that they used to monitor the worksite and the record that they had caught deficiencies and noted them on the spot, that a brief or momentary alleged violative practice could be caught by an employer just because the compliance officer happened to observe it. Um, I also think it's it goes to a problem that I have with a lot of OSHA citations that I've seen. And that is that the question of employer knowledge seems by OSHA oftentimes to just be imputed automatically. There's not much value given to this last element of the four elements that we listed before that, that the employer is, um, not only supposed to have been alleged to have engaged in a practice which doesn't conform with a standard that applies to the practice, but that they either knew or with excess reasonable diligence should have, that last part is, is oftentimes skipped over or not given its due weight or value by the compliance officer or by the secretary in trial, uh, as if it's always assumed that the employer should just always know. And if there's a violation, then that was the, the fault of the employer for not doing something about it. Oftentimes, it, through no fault of the employer, employees still fail to comply with their duties. Here, we have a clear example of that. So with that said, let's talk about what lessons we could have learned from the Shelly and Sands case, Taylor. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and you'll notice a, a theme here, and that's that Shelley and Sands uh, did the vast majority of these actions, um, which is why we wanted to highlight them here. And as Manish was mentioning, that they were really they were able to rely on that uh, when they appeared before the court. Um, so the first thing is uh, implement and communicate a, a thorough and safety training program. Um, so in the case uh, Shelley and Sands, it was noted that they they distributed uh, an employee safety handbook annually, um, and then they had acknowledgments that uh, employees were to sign that they had received that handbook. Um, the next thing was to document uh, employee participation in on-site training and disciplinary action. Um, so again, acknowledgement forms that employees participated in the training, and then as Monica just mentioned, you know, over 100 instances, documented instances uh, of disciplinary action, um, which really helps help Shelley and Sands in this case. Um, the, the court also talks about, um, and uh, the review commission talks about uh, anticipating hazards and taking measures to prevent violations from occurring. Um, so the example that they provide here is that the foreman ran um, weekly toolbox talks where he would uh, discuss, uh, you know, certain things that may have caught his eye during the week and, and talk about how to prevent those moving forward. Um, and then last but not least, uh, you know, again, sort of a theme here is effectively enforcing the rules when violations are detected. Um, I've heard Monash say many times uh, that there should be no such thing as a purely verbal warning. Um, so in this instance, uh, Shelley and Sands did a very good job of uh, when they when they did give a verbal warning, um, they documented it. And so that was part of the, the record, the, the evidentiary record before the review commission. Um, and it certainly helped them in, in proving that they did not have uh, actual or constructive knowledge in this case. Yeah, it's funny, Taylor. There's a couple of misunderstandings uh, that have a lot of prevalence or currency uh, in the workplace about uh, reprimands. One of them is if you give a written reprimand that the employee, you have to hand it to the employee, they have to sign it. And some employees don't understand the value of this exercise any more than maybe sometimes the employer. And they'll say, well, I refuse to sign that because I disagree with the content. Uh, I don't know that I see any value in the exercise at all. I think that the value is in retaining a record that a reprimand was issued. So I personally take the view that many of the reprimands that I see can simply be done verbally, provided that the supervisor who issues the reprimand keeps a log of all reprimands and the details. That record is a record of his own for his own value or her own value uh, and use. And that I think is sufficient for establishing a record that certain practices were monitored for compliance and uh, enforced uh, through the use of reprimands. I would ar argue, however, that if there's any weakness to a fact pattern like uh, the one we see in Shelley and Sands, is that if you have, for example, a hundred verbal reprimands and you, never, and, and you never accelerate the severity of the reprimand and it's always just a verbal reprimand, then I, uh, then I wonder whether or not a plaintiff's attorney, or in this case, the uh, Secretary of Labor, would be able to persuasively make an argument that this was not taken seriously, that a verbal reprimand without consequence was not a sufficient um, uh, exercise of enforcement powers, particularly if it was the same employee in the same malpractice for the second or third or fourth time, right. that the, the severity of the punishment should graduate to reflect the employee's recidivism or failure to, to, to learn the importance of that, that poli established policy. So I'd point that out that, that 100 uh, reprimands is good, but not if it's to the same people doing the same things over and over again. Sure. 
Um, the other thing I'd say about training is, uh, I, in addition to showing records that uh, any particular employee participated in training, I'd really like to see records that the employee was tested for their comprehension. Written tests are great, and so are demonstrative tests. To, to demonstrate compliance is, I think, the gold standard, and to create a record that they demonstrated um, how to do things properly, in this case, how to tie off properly, might be uh, a record that could aid an employer in if they find themselves in a circumstance like Shelly and Sands. So those, those best practices, I think, come out of uh, the between the lines of the Review Commission's decision. Uh, this is one of the last decisions issued by a full commission involving uh, Commissioners uh, Sullivan, Leahow, and, and Atwood. Uh, now I believe, uh, I, I could be wrong, but I believe there's, there's two commissioners uh, and, and uh, we'll have to wait and see what kinds of opinions come out once uh, the commission is fully impaneled again. Uh, and this, as we pointed out at the beginning, was a dis, uh, two to one uh, vote. So when you add the original ALJ in, uh, I think it's interesting that it's essentially a two to two vote if you, if you were to add them that way. Mm -hmm. um, so so it, it highlights the importance of having a full panel in the commission. Uh, any other thoughts about takeaway items before we move on? No, I think, I think we covered it. Well, Taylor, thank you for uh, helping me cover that case because I think it's an incredibly important case when it goes to a defense that employers uh, often overlook. This attorney is an excellent attorney, as I've said before, uh, and a proper OSHA attorney, which I think is important when you're trying OSHA cases, uh, OSHA law cases, and, and he got a great result as a consequence. So this uh, OSHA 3030 episode, we're going to post on our website for those at your uh, place who might have missed it, some of your colleagues might have missed it, and that's khlaw.com slash OSHA 3030. All of our episodes uh, are, are posted on, on our website, and we just finished today eight complete years or about 96 episodes of, of the OSHA 3030, which means I think November is going to be our 100th episode, and, uh, and they're all on our website at khlaw.com. Uh, we'll also rebroadcast this as a podcast, sound only. Uh, we'll broadcast the slides and sound on YouTube, so you can catch it on YouTube. Uh, all of us are on LinkedIn, so please link in with us if you haven't thus far. Uh, subscribe to the podcast if you listen to it as a podcast, and remember to like or rate the YouTube or podcast uh, so that it's more easily findable when others search for it. Uh, and the last comment I'll make before we go is that the next episode of the OSHA 3030 will be on Wednesday, August 25th, at 1 p.m. Eastern, always on a Wednesday, always at 1 p.m. Eastern. Uh, and our sister programs, uh, we've got a Tosca 3030 scheduled for August 18th. And our Reach 3030 and FIFR 3030 uh, will have new dates announced shortly. So stay tuned or subscribe uh, so that you can get announcements for those. And when you get the announcement for the OSHA 3030, please forward it on to your in-house Office of General Counsel and other safety and health professionals at your organization who are responsible for OSHA compliance. Uh, the, the new attendees within your organization and at other organizations that you can forward news of the OSHA 3032 are the lifeblood of the future of this program. We wanna do this for another eight years and you have a role in making that happen by forwarding these invitations on, particularly to safety and health professionals and in-house counsel responsible for OSHA law. That's the July 2021 OSHA 3030. On behalf of Taylor Johnson and all of us at Keller and Heckman, I'm thankful to all of you for participating in another episode. We look forward to seeing you next month. And we're going to turn the recording off and go into the off the record section in a few moments. And until we see you next month, 
stay safe.